thanks, Sohi, for reading that very long passage. I don't know if I've ever been at a, a, in our church where we've had to turn the bulletin to get the whole passage, but I, I, I'm convinced that you have to read all three of these stories together, so that's why we have them together. But let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much for the chance to gather together as a church, and Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to shape us and train us in order to look to Jesus more. We pray that you would speak through me now and that you would form our hearts through your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So uh, we're, we're taking a little bit of a, a break from the, the Lent series that we've been doing on the Gospel of Matthew that Pastor Eric's been preaching through. So while he's away, um, I'm here to fill in. So I, I'm Isaac, a uh, member of the church here, and um, just really excited to be able to share with you guys about this passage. So we, um, the, the, what, what drew me to 2 Samuel is actually that the, the church is doing a community Bible reading. And so for any of you that are, that are participating in that reading plan, um, this was a passage. It was all the way back in January, but, um, but I, I kind of have been chewing on it since then, and I wanted to share it with you. So, um, so that's, that's the passage we have for today. I, I've entitled the sermon, In the Presence of Greatness, and I want to just start by posing a sort of a silly question, uh, but when was the last time you were in the presence of greatness? Um, and I mean that sort of just real generally. I'm actually thinking, like, when was the last time you saw a famous person or a celebrity. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll run into people that are coming out of a restaurant or coming off an airplane, and they're really excited because, oh, I just saw, you know, so-and-so, well, who was it? I don't know, LeBron James or Brad Pitt or something, and they're all excited, and, uh, and they get kind of giddy and, and excited about that. Uh, I was trying to think if, if I have any of those uh, experiences, and I couldn't really come up with much. The one thing I, I, I came up with was a time when Lori and I were dating um, a, a while back. We were up in Pasadena at a um, restaurant, and we were driving into park, and Lori said, oh, look, there's Kirk from the, new, the Gilmore Girls. I don't know if you've ever seen the Gilmore Girls. I had I only barely saw him. I was like, he's like the really weird guy in the show. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, no, it wasn't, you know, that's not that amazing, right? Maybe you have better stories than I do. Um, but the, the, the thing I'm after here is, is, is when people come into that, like, you know, around a celebrity, it does something to you, right? It sort of makes you feel a little bit nervous. Sometimes people start to worry about how they look. And if maybe you interact with the person, you probably say something really stupid, right? Because you just, you don't know what to do. Um, and so, so the presence of greatness, can, it does something to you. Um, and in those, those uh, scenarios, it's kind of silly. Those come and go. They don't really affect your life. But imagine if, uh, if you were coming into the presence, maybe, maybe let's say you're in a Starbucks and you run into uh, a, the CEO of your company. Now, that's a person that's very important, great, but it does have an impact on your life, right? So you kind of really, you get really nervous because you want to make sure that you come off with a good impression because that could, you know, determine whether or not you get a, a promotion down the road. Those kinds of stories are a little more important, and that, I do have one of those. Um, so Lori and I, uh, this was before going to St. Andrews about four years ago. Um, we went over to, to Scotland to visit some, some schools, some PhD programs I was thinking about applying to. And uh, we had set up a, a, a campus visit on one of, um, at St. Andrews, and it was just going to be a visit around the campus. We were just going to sort of see things, almost like touristy. It was nothing else planned. But um, the meeting with the, the uh, administrative people, they sort of gave me this little sheet of paper. They said, hey, we managed to get you a meeting with one of the PhD you know, supervising professors or something. And so I was like, okay. And I look at the paper, and it says, oh, you know, in 45 minutes, Isaac's set to, to meet with Professor N.T. Wright. I don't know if you know anything about biblical studies, but like, that's a, he's a really big star in biblical studies. And, um, and it was the kind of thing where not only is he important, and I'd be nervous about meeting him in general, but 
I was nervous that my, I might say something stupid and not get, you know, make, sort of screw up my chances to get into the PhD program. So for the next 45 minutes, I was like terrified. We were like walking around campus, they're pointing out around things, and I'm just like thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Um, so I just bring that up as an example of when you're coming in the presence of greatness, it does something to you, and it, and, it, and it can be scary. So being in the presence of greatness can be an intimidating thing, and it causes different people to respond in various ways. So what I see in our passage this morning, so going back to 2 Samuel 6, I see the presence of God here among the people of God, and his presence is there in the ark. We'll talk about how that takes place, but his presence is there, and I see three different people responding to God's presence in different ways. So on the, on the first, you have Uzzah, who responds to God's presence with presumption. We'll talk about that in a minute, but that's Uzzah's response. And then you have David, who responds to the presence of God's greatness with jubilation. And then finally, you've got uh, Michal, or Michael, or um, Mikhail, it's a hard name to pronounce. Um, she responds to the presence of God's greatness with derision. So you've got one, one presence, three responses, one God, three attitudes, Towards, uh, towards him, whether it's the attitude of presumption or jubilation or derision. So we're going to talk about those responses today. Um, so if I could first start off by saying, let's look at how God's presence was there in the Ark of the Covenant. I think I've got a picture here of a cool, um, this is Doré's p- painting of them bringing the ark in. So you see in the back up on the hill with the, with the sun shining around them, that's the ark on the cart getting kind of carted along. Um, so so what, is this, what, what is the ark of the covenant? What's the deal with that? Um, if you see in, in our passage today, verse 2, it sort of um, gives over-the-top description of, uh, about this, the ark of the covenant. Um, because what does it say? It says that um, it's the ark which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is like the long phrase description of what the ark is. And so it, what is it? What is it? It's, it's um, characterized by God himself. The name of God is, is, is um, you know, encapsulated in, in this thing. And it's also the place where he sits enthroned on the cherubim. So if you notice, I don't know if you remember, but when, when, when the ark is being described, when the instructions are given about how to build it, it's, it has these wings, right, these a- angel wings on the top of it. I don't have a picture of that, sorry. But the idea is that God sort of rests his feet and sits as a throne on top of those wings. So, uh, so that gives a little bit of a picture from our passage, but I want to give you a little bit of a backstory um, from earlier passages of the ark. Because what happens is 2 Samuel 6 is actually sort of the climax or the end point of where the ark is going. This is sort of the last time you hear about it in, in the Old Testament story. So I want to give you the backstory, okay? So um, we don't have to turn there, but in, in Exodus 37, that's where the instructions were given about how to build it, wh- what it's supposed to look like. Um, and the important thing there is that these are instructions about God's temple, right? God's temple is the place where he is going to dwell with his people. And at the center of that temple the ho- is the Holy of Holies. Again, the inner sanctum, that's where God was going to be. And where, what is in the, the, in the Holy of Holies? That's where the ark is supposed to be. So this is... God's presence with his people is characterized, symbolized by the ark. I think I've got a a quote up on the screen here from a scholar that tells us that firstly, the ark is uh, is intimately bound up with the presence of Yahweh. Where the ark is, Yahweh is. And secondly, the ark is related to Yahweh's enthronement upon the cherubim. Again, kind of he's, he's, he's enthroned upon the wings of those angels. So, so the ark is all about God's presence. Um, but if you go, so that's Exodus 37, but if you go generations down the road, um, and now you're dealing with Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4, okay? So our passage today was from 2 Samuel. If you go back a book, 
1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel finds itself in, in trouble. They're fighting against the Philistines, and they're losing. And so somebody has the idea, the not-so-bright idea, maybe if we bring the ark with us into battle, that God will somehow zap all our enemies, you know, almost like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? When, when they take the thing off and everybody gets zapped. Um, so that's their idea. Um, and so they say something like, let us, let me get it here, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here so that he may come among us and save us from the power of the enemies. Um, now, I just want to highlight, that's from 1 Samuel 4, 3. I want to highlight, that's the first example of a bad way to deal with God's presence. Um, that's the first example of presumption. The idea that you could sort of tell God where to go and direct him and say, go, do this, do that, do this. And they're trying to use God for their own purposes. That's the wrong way to interact with God's presence. And it shows up in that story. Because what happens? Well, obviously it doesn't work. They lose. And not only do they lose, but the, the slaughter is severe, it says in, in 1 Samuel 4. And the enemies capture the ark. So the Philistines now kind of take possession of God's presence in some weird way. They bring it over to their, to their, uh, to their land. Now, Chapter 5 of 1 Samuel is a little funny because that's where the, the, the Philistines are trying to sort of, what do we do now with this thing that we've captured? And all of a sudden, God starts to wreak havoc on the Philistines. And so he starts to kind of kill them left and right. And then they just realize, we need to get rid of this thing. So they try to, they try to do everything they can. They're even willing to Lord, sort of pay to get it off their hands. And so they go through this roundabout exchange. They sort of get in touch with Israel. And they say, hey, can we, can we give this thing back to you? And so they do. Um, and they get it. And Israel gets it back. Um, and so this, but, but I do want to highlight one more thing about what, what Israel does when they get it back, is that they, they're taking it in, and then again, Israel mismanages God's presence, because it says that, that 70 people tried to look inside of it, and they got killed, okay? So this is 1 Samuel 4, uh, in, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 5, where um, they look inside the ark, and they get, and, and 70 Israelites get killed. So not only are the enemies of God getting judged, but even Israel itself is getting judged, for their mismanaging, their presumption against God and his presence. So I bring that up just to sort of set a context to say that is back then. Oh, sorry, I, I should say that, that after that happens, Israel, uh, the Israelites get scared. And so they say, let's just put the ark over here. They sort of put it in this out-of-the-way, isolated town, and they just leave it there for, you know, the whole reign of Saul. We don't even hear about the ark. So we don't hear about it until chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, our passage today. So that now we jump forward to 2 Samuel. Now David is, is coming into power. He's conquered his enemies around him, and he wants to set up his capital. Okay, so he, he decides Jerusalem's the place he wants to, to do it. And once he has Jerusalem, he says, now let's bring God's presence in. Okay, so that's the context for the passage today. He's processing the ark in from that out-of-the-way out area into Jerusalem. Now, hasn't gotten there yet. And this is where we start to, 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 to get into our passage today about Uzzah and his presumption, okay? So we saw from this earlier bit of God dealing with it that God's presence can be dangerous. Um, it doles out punishment and death if you deal with it in the wrong way. Um, and, and that's exactly what we're going to see happening with Uzzah, okay? So let's talk a little bit about Uzzah's punishment. I feel like it's hard not to feel bad for Uzzah. I feel like you know, he's trying to do everything that's, that's, he's just trying to do his job, right? He's trying to protect the ark as it comes in. He's the front man. He sort of has to carry, you know, kind of guard the, the cart as it moves forward. And it starts to slide off, and so he reaches out to protect it. I mean, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's a sinful thing that he does that, okay? Um, so I just want to recognize that, but then say, well, maybe, the, I mean, the verse that, that I'm looking at is verse 7. It says that why was God angry at him? 
God was angry at him because of his error, it says in the text that we have. Now, there's uh, some debate about that word. Um, the word could also be translated impudence or, uh, or um, presumption. So it's either his error or his, or his sort of wrong presumptionness to it. Um, so basically what you find is that Uzzah is trying to protect God. So God's presence in the ark. He thinks that it's, something's going to happen, and he's trying to protect God. What he should have been doing is trying to protect himself. Okay? Now, I, I, I know that it's sort of silly, but, but what I mean by that is God's presence require, is holy and therefore requires a level of purity. It's not something that you can just sort of come at willy-nilly. You need to be uh, careful and basically follow the instructions that he's laid out. So back, again, back in uh, all of the Torah, Exodus and Leviticus, God lays out specific ways for people to come near to him. Okay, so again, God is holy. In order to come near to him, you have to have these sacrifices in place is what they had in Leviticus. Um, and so I have a, a slide up for, um, yeah, so one scholar talks about the, the sacrifices of Leviticus and how they interact with God's presence. He says the sacrifices of Leviticus 1 are necessary for the Israelites as they approach God in the tabernacle. It's fitting that they are offered here um, as David is in the presence of God whose presence is above the ark. So uh, I'll leave that quote up for a minute because I've sort of preempted that. But what I mean to say is when Uzzah is, is first walking through the ark, um, processing the ark, and he gets struck down, what you don't find is that there are no, well, there are no sacrifices offered. The only thing that, the, the only sort of uh, uh, protections that, that, um, that, that David has set in place are that they, they use a new cart, okay? So that's, that's their way that they're going to sort of protect things. Well, there needs to be more is what I mean to say by that. And you can tell by if you look down to verse, I think it's verse 13. Um, let me just see where I'm at here. So chapter, again, we're in 2 Samuel 6. If you look down to, uh, to verse, sorry, forgive me, verse 13. Verse 13, this is the second attempt. There's, there's, there's specific things brought in, into place, right? So David says, okay, every time we move, what, six steps, we're going to offer another sacrifice. So that's a very different scenario than you had with Uzzah. And so part of what I want to say here about Uzzah's failure, Uzzah's presumption, is that Uzzah takes the hit for the team. It's not just Uzzah who's, who's at fault here. David needs to bear some of the responsibility here because he's the one who's out, you know, dancing and celebrating as the ark comes in, but Uzzah's the guy who sort of has to stand in the blast radius of God's presence, and he's the one that gets struck down. But David, you know, he should have known better is, is what I mean to say here, and he sort of corrects things on the front end. The reason I bring that up is, is to say, you know, how do we deal with that passage in our life as Christians today? We need to recognize that God's presence is holy, and that we can't just approach him in any old way, okay? And when you do that, you, get, you might get struck down the way Uzzah does. God has, has specifically laid out ways for you to approach him. And back in the Old Testament, that involved these Levitical sacrifices. But for us today, there's one sacrifice and one sacrifice alone that gets us into God's presence, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus. So again, as we, we come near to God's presence, we need to approach him in the right way, and that is through going through Jesus. And we shouldn't sort of just presume that, oh, we can just be buddy-buddy with God. No, God is holy and perfect, and the only way that we can interact with him, now God has opened himself up, but it's only through Jesus. So I, I just bring that off as, as, as an initial point of just saying presumption here is the idea that we would approach God in the way that we want, and God says, no, you need to approach me in the way that I've, I've oh, the path that I have opened up for you. And it's, it's an, yeah, it's a hard path. It's a narrow path that not everyone's going to be able to follow. 
But it's an easy path, and it's a light path because we have Jesus, our forerunner, who opens it up for us. So I encourage us in that first setting to say, don't be presumptuous upon God. Rather, come in the way that he has, has guided to us. So that's, that's a little bit of Uzzah. Let's turn now to David and David's interaction with God's presence. So as I said, um, Uzzah responded to God's, God's presence with presumption. David responds to God's presence with jubilation, rejoicing, okay? And I'm, I'm really after here the, the elements of him dancing. It says like five or six times throughout our passage that David was dancing and singing before the Lord. Um, and maybe, maybe dance isn't the first thing that you think of when coming into God's presence. Maybe you don't think about dancing. But really, for, for the culture back then, this was a normal thing. So I have, a, I have a, a quote here from a scholar that helps us see what ancient Israel culture and ancient Eurasian culture was all about. Um, it's not this one. It's the, yeah, this one. In, in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, dance was a common way of expressing the encounter with the holy. It was a spontaneous human expression of the sense of rapture. And hence, it was regarded and utilized as, on the one hand, a means to bring about this rapture, and on the other hand, an experience of holy power and the presence of the divine. So what this scholar, um, Sigmund Movinkel, is telling us is saying that dance was used not only to, um, to, well, it was used to bring about God's presence. It was sort of like, as you dance, that draws God in in some ways. And then also that it's the response. Once God's there, that's your response to, to worship him. Um, so, so dance, um, it's... What, 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 one of the things I want to draw out here is that our engagement with God's presence needs to be more than just intellectual. I mean, it's not just something about us sitting here sort of thinking about how great God is. That's true. That's a part of it. But it also should encompass more elements of our lives. Dance, physical things, song, rejoicing. There's a bunch of instruments listed in verse 2, I think. Um, so, so there's other elements to it. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll add to this. I don't know if you picked up in verses 18 and 19. Not only is there song and dance, but there's also... Um, eating. There's feasting in God's presence. And so what happens is after the sacrifices are given, God, uh, I mean, David gives out food to everybody that's come to celebrate. Um, and I love that as to see in that sort of a, a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Because you notice that in the Gospels, Jesus too gives food, gives out food to everybody that comes to him and, and to find salvation in him. And, I, and, and that's the thing that we celebrate week in and week out as we, as we take the, the, the um, communion together. We're celebrating God's presence with our mouths, with our taste buds. As we fellowship together, as we eat together, again, one more element of, you know, our worship of God is more than just simply what we think, what's going on in our heads. It's also what's going on in our mouths. It's what's going on in our voices as we sing. It's what's going on in our legs as we dance around. Um, I do have a, ver a, a quote here that I, I sort of skipped over, but it says to set a picture for David's dancing. Um, okay, so the picture in 2 Samuel 6 is that of an imposing procession headed by the king going in front of the ark into Jerusalem. The entire body of those, so all of Israel forming the procession, is described as dancing. But a special attention is drawn to David. And the words used in relevance, uh, in, in, what is it, reference to his mode of dancing are instructive. He not only dances in the ordinary sense of the word, but he rotates. He, uh, what is it, he... Ro yeah, rotates with all his might, he jumps, and he whirls about. So again, just the picture of, you know, there's a lot of movement going on here. David is, is just letting himself go in God's presence. But I want to keep that in tension with what we saw with Uzzah. Letting himself go is a sense of, you know, David is, is excited about who God is. But as I said before, we can't enter God's presence willy-nilly. There's a little bit of a tension here of saying, be free before God as long as you're doing so through the way that he's described 
through Jesus. So, so for us today, I think that means sort of celebrating who Jesus is and letting ourselves be excited about that, um, but not getting off track to say that we're going to approach God in our own way, in, in our own uh, abilities. So that sort of sets up a little bit of what I want to say about the jubilation described in David's dancing. Um, and the, the final thing that I want to point out about David, it comes in verse 22. So it's a little bit down in. We'll talk about the, the interaction with, with Michael. But in 22, David says something like, I will be even more, um, I think it's despised or something in my own eyes before the Lord. Um, and, and the picture that you've got to have here, I think that, that what this tells us is the sense that when we come into God's presence, we need to be so taken up with God's greatness that we, we forget about anything that we might deserve. Basically, to rejoice in God's presence means to recognize our position of dependence upon him. It's so, so it means to recognize our lowliness and to find our greatness in him. So that's the jubilation. That's the joy, the rejoicing that we should have when we come into God's presence through Christ. We should rejoice not in the fact that we are great, but in the fact that he is great and, and, and recognize our, our situation of dependence and taking our, our, our delight in who he is and, and, our, and our greatness in who he is. That, so I hope that sets up a little bit of a picture of David. Let's switch over now to the, the picture of Michael. So Michael, um, it, so she comes at the, the, the tail end of this passage. She seems to be clearly presented as the, the anti-model, right? She's the, she's the bad character in this story. Um, I, I, before I get into that, though, I do want to say that if you have a, uh, if, if you have a bitter, bigger picture of Michael's story, I feel a lot of sympathy for her, just as I did with Uzzah. I, f- I feel some empathy for Michael. Why? Well, if you see at the beginning of the story when she pops in in 1 Samuel, she falls in love with David. Well, you know that, so Michael's the daughter of Saul, right? So that puts her in context. She falls in love with David, but her, her father then uses her to entrap David, right? She, she's given to David as a wife, but then she's taken away and given to somebody else, right? And she, she, she um, is the first wife of David, but then she sees David take other wives and start having children by these other wives and she, while she remains childless. She gets a, kind of a bad rap throughout Scripture. And so it's not surprising to me to see her, I guess, sort of lash out in, in, in what we get here. Right? So I, I have some empathy for her. And yet we do have to realize that in this passage in 2 Samuel 6, she is the one person who's not celebrating God's presence, right? So everybody's dancing with David. All of Israel is joined together. And Michael's the one who says, no, I, I don't want to celebrate this right now. I'd rather kind of slam, slam her husband. So, and that's what she does. So on, on, on one level, you could, we could look at what she does and say, well, that tells us that we need to be careful about when we come into God's presence, don't look at what other people are doing. I mean, I've got this quote um, in the, the opening page of your bulletin from George Herbert, the great English poet. I don't have it up on the screen, sorry. Um, but if you just turn to the front of your page, the bulletin, it's a, um, he says something like, um, uh, those who mark in church time others' symmetry, um, their beauty becomes our deformity. So it's sort of, you know, high f- language is a little bit tricky, but what he's saying basically is when you come into God's presence, if you're critiquing the people around you, then what is beautiful in them becomes ugly in you. And so for, for our story, what was beautiful in, in David's jubilation became Michael's spitefulness and became ugly in her as her spitefulness. So, um, and that's, that, that's something that we can even still think of today. As we come to church, let's not get so caught up in looking around at what other people are doing. Let's, get, let's get kind of let ourselves go in God's own goodness. That's one level of the reading. But there's a, there's a deeper level of reading Michael's derision against God and God's presence. And that is to say, 
if you, the, the whole context of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel taken together, there's a theme of the, of, of the ones who despise God and the things of God. It starts all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, where God tells Eli, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me, I will despise, basically. Um, and that idea about those who despise God, he will avenge, take vengeance on them, that plays out all the way through. So when Saul is first made king in 1 Samuel 10, um, there are some wicked men among Israel who despise Saul. Okay? So again, despising the one whom God has chosen. Um, and then you jump down a little ways, and you've got David and Goliath. Well, Goliath, obviously, you know, the, the little runt David over there, he despises him. But the, but the word is, is very distinct in the Hebrew. He despises David, and therefore God judges him, right? And if you jump past our passage in 2 Samuel, you go to David and his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. The, the, the challenge that Nathan, the prophet, brings to David is to say that, hey, you've despised God, and you've despised God's word. And it goes on. So, so despise, the, this word for despising, um, if you're characterized as a despiser throughout First or Second Samuel, you're basically sort of being put on the camp of those who are enemies of God, those who are standing against God and against God's agents. So even though Michael is despising David, really she's despising God because David is the one whom God has chosen. So I bring that up to, to again, affirm this fact that, that, that Michael's despising her derision against God's presence is to say, David, you're, you're, you're making yourself a, a fool. You're, you're, um, you're kind of humiliating yourself before others, and therefore you're humiliating me as your wife. Um, that's, that's what, you know, the, 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 her derision can be encapsulated as. What that means is to say that you're despising the way that God has chosen to come to you. Um, I, I see in this a picture of, again, the, the true Davidic king, the Messiah, Jesus, who also was, was not so, high, so proud that he was, he's, he was willing to humble himself, to come in humble garb as a carpenter, to be a servant and to serve others rather than to be served. That is the thing in which, in which Michael despises David. That is the thing in which some of us oftentimes, or we may despise Jesus for that. We may think, Jesus doesn't look like the Savior that we want. He's not the great and glorious kind of fixing all our problems Savior. And so, and so you despise him. You say, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, you say, you should be more like the way I want you to be. That is the characteristic. Again, that is the, the presumption, the derision that we should not have when we come into God's presence. And the opposite to that is the jubilation that David showed. And again, it's a, it's a recognition of our own lowliness, and it's a, a delighting independence, a, a delighting in our dependence upon God and finding our greatness in him. And that's the exhortation I want to leave us with this morning is to say, when we approach God's presence, don't, don't be presumptuous and try to tell God how he should be. Don't, de, don't uh, de, de, deride and don't despise how he has come to us in Jesus, but instead rejoice and delight in our position of dependence, in our, in our, in our lowliness before him. See him as the great God for who he is and find our greatness in him. So that's our exhortation. Let's pray. Father, um, again, we are so grateful for the way that you have come to us in Jesus. And, and it's a way that, we, that none of us were looking for. It's, 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 it's below what we had. Maybe we were expecting a king to come and to, and to, uh, to sort of fix all the problems in the world. And, and you didn't do that. You came in a low way. You started small. And we do look for your coming again when you will come in glory. But right now we accept and we rejoice in the fact that you are lowly and we enter into that, that world of, of lowliness with you so that we can minister to those around us. 
Father, we ask that you would help us to rejoice in, 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 our, in our place before you and to find our greatness in you and you alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.